1: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
2: Welcome to Late Lunch Playback this final week in May. We begin with a lovely story. Little Ben McCormick was just six years old three years ago when he began complaining of a pain in his leg. A serious diagnosis followed... But now, three years on, after a difficult journey, his treatment has ended. Here's his dad, Mark.
3: Oh, yeah, Terry, uh, unbelievable uh, to get over the finish line, I suppose, in some sort of way, um, after three long years for Ben. And, uh, yeah, we had a little bit of a get-together with family on Sunday. So it was a nice little celebration.
2: It certainly was. Take us back those three years. You, you know children, you have other children yourself and families and mums and dads listening today understand this. They tell you from time to time, oh, I have a pain in my leg. You know the, You know the score yourself. But this turned out to be a little different.
3: It did indeed, Jerry. Yeah, I take back, I suppose, to uh, the 10th of March, uh, t- t- 2017. Um, he came home from school, Ben came home from school, um, had his dinner, and had another little bit after that and went up to his room and uh, things changed for the worse. So he had obviously been complaining of playing his leg on and off for about two weeks before that and um, we just thought nothing of it. Nothing of it really. We thought maybe something that happened in the schoolyard or out playing football or something that could happen. But um, yeah, we went into the GP and uh, they rushed us to Temple Street. So went to Temple Street and spent the night there and uh, unfortunately got the, the bad news that he had leukemia and uh, were transferred to Crumlin the next morning. So we spent 12 torturous days in Crumlin Um then started his treatment and uh, yeah, the nightmare begun, I suppose.
2: It's... A long journey. Three years is a long, long time. You know, when you get the news first, did you suspect, you know, when you saw how quickly your GP moved and the referral to one place and then to another, was it in the back of your mind we're in a bit of bother here?
3: Well, I suppose, Jerry, even driving to Temple Street, you, you, you never think that it's, uh, you never think that that's what it's going to be, I suppose. Um, I suppose when we were kept so long in Temple Street that, that night and, um I suppose around two or three o'clock in the morning that the doctor came around and said what it could be and that they'd be transferring us to Crumlin. But I suppose it started to hit home then and the next that next morning, uh, one of the doctors brought us into a room in Crumlin and told us that it was uh, ALL, acute lymphoblastic leukaemia. And, uh, yeah, it's, I suppose you never think it's really going to happen to you, but there we were in the situation and... Uh, that was
2: just it. Mm. What about the child himself? You know, he's only six years of age at that st- stage. H- yeah. How do you tell him, or do you tell him, or how do you explain that? Uh, I don't.
3: I don't. I don't really know how you how we went about it. It's uh, everything's just going at a million miles an hour mm. in those first twelve days. That it's something that you uh, can't really explain fully, I suppose, to a six-year-old, but he knew, obviously, yes. that something was seriously wrong. And uh, the change in him from those 12 days was just frightening, to be honest. Um, he went from happy-go-lucky fella to, you know, a, a different human, I suppose. And, uh, yeah, it was, just ha- it was just hard. It was a hard time, and I suppose we're just glad to come out the right, the right side of it.
2: Yes, and obviously he he knew, as you said himself, and and that physically it is, it's affecting him, but obviously in his mind as well, and and the way you describe that change in a short space of time. But this fellow is made of stern stuff, isn't he? Because <laughs> he uh, he is he embraced, he is, yeah. you know, with the journey he had to undertake, and he never complained.
3: No, Jerry, he didn't. He never complained once. Uh, never asked why he was why it was him that had to go on this horrible journey or just took it all in a stride and uh, he give you he made us stronger I suppose in a way the way he dealt with it and uh, he's just a credit to himself
2: The treatment how regular was that and and what form did it take? Uh, the
3: treatment was right it was an intensive course for for six months and and um, up and down to Crumlin for chemo and uh, he had nightly chemo at home and he was up to Crumlin every three weeks for for a dose of chemo and then every 12 weeks he was up to uh, Crumlin again for a lumbar puncture into his spine to, for chemo to protect his brain. So, you know, it was fairly full on at the start but <clears throat> after the six months then you go, you go into maintenance and it's not as intense. But it, look, it's still has to take chemotherapy in a in a liquid form every night at home and uh, yeah it's a bit surreal not having to give him give it to him now but uh it's all, it's all good
2: so he's finished treatment now as of the weekend and yeah. uh his cancer is gone his
3: leukemia is yeah his leukemia is gone uh, there's no leukemia cells left in his body and um, he has over a ninety percent chance of it never coming back again. So, but look, we won't be fully in the clear for another five years. Um, so we we'll have checkups every so often. He's back in August to see the professor in Cromwell again, just to see how things are going. So,
1: yes.
3: um, yeah. So look, we still have to be still have to be careful. That his immune system isn't, or won't be back to, to normal for for a while yet after taking all the the key one stuff so we just have to be careful especially with what's going on at the minute you know
2: <clears throat> of course Of course It's uh, an example To people And you know People at times Are blasé About this COVID But there are Many many people Like Ben In vulnerable positions And they must be protected And I want to Shout that out again Today to people exactly, This yeah. journey We're on with the COVID Is by no means over And don't ever Get complacent about it And Ben McCormick Is one example of this Now your wife Michelle She's a great woman She gave up her job yep. To look after him Full time And of course You have two others as well You have Alex and Molly Uh so you know what a change in life for the family all round oh
3: yeah completely yeah um, completely uh, yeah Michelle is a great woman she's, she's our rock um, she gave up her job as you say and uh, became a full time carer for Ben and look it's it's hard it was hard with two other kids and it's hard on the other kids as well because you know Ben was getting a lot of attention and stuff and you know it's, it's hard to juggle three kids when there's a, a sick child in the house but look Michelle is an unbelievable woman and she uh, kept it all together for us and just can't say enough about her to be honest
2: Now We've, we've got to mention Harling haven't we and sure. Look, what do you say about <laughs> Kildocky and Harling in County Mead and this team and club, but this fella, I want, I want to tell listeners, even when he's going through these tough times of all yeah. these years Harling was a great focus for him
4: Oh, uh, Absolutely,
3: absolutely. Uh, he loves the hurling, and um, you know he, he'd always go down training for his underage stuff. Even even when he came home from Crumlin after getting chemo say, on a Tuesday, he'd he'd be down training on the Wednesday for his own training, and uh, just kept him going. And I suppose last year when I was training with the team, he was down every training session, and he never missed one. So uh, all the lads love him down there, and you know there's a lot to be said for hurling, and. Uh, just been active I suppose and it just it just kept him going and he still loves it you know
2: and you did the business for him <laughs> you did it <laughs> <don't>
3: you? <laughs> we did the business for him yeah and it was a great day and uh, oh, he was super excited super excited and uh, he loved every minute of it yeah mm.
2: I suppose for Kildarky you know a hurling title is you know something nearly expected in the village isn't it <laughs> with the club
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah I suppose there was a a lot of pressure, I suppose, towards the end of the year. I suppose we didn't have much pressure on ourselves at the start of the year. But as as you go on in the championship, I suppose, you and you get to the final, I suppose when you're there, you want to win it. So, uh, oh, look, we were, we were lucky, I suppose, the first day maybe against Kiltale. We, we got a draw in the end, but uh, we really done the business in the replay. And uh, mm. Yeah, to bring back uh, a title to Kildarki after after all the things that people in Kildarki done for us, uh, at the very start of our journey with fundraisers and stuff, and it was just a nice little uh, thank you, I suppose, to to all the people in the village.
2: Oh, you can't beat sporting success to lift a community, and I'm sure he's 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 uh, chomping at the bit to get back down there when you guys are back in training and sport is back.
3: Yeah, he, he is. He's uh, he, he misses the hurling all. He misses the hurling all a good bit, and misses his friends, I suppose, and just getting back out onto the pitch and doing a bit of hurling and coming down and watching the seniors train and going in for tea and biscuits after. <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh, you can't beat the tea and biscuits. You're a, no. It's an integral part of the whole experience. We know that. I know you mentioned the community there and I just want to acknowledge them again myself. The support you got from family and friends and the sporting community and the wider community in Kildare and the county and beyond as well. And yeah. also the, the staff in the hospital, you wanted to give them a wee mention. They were terrific to you
3: ah yeah the the staff up in uh, Crumlin are just unbelievable and I have to say Mullingar as well Mullingar was our local hospital so sometimes Ben got a temperature down there as well so to them uh, Mullingar uh, Johns Ward Day Ward in Crumlin uh, make a wish Avian's Pink Tie the blood bikes who are a voluntary group of lads that just get up on the motorbike and come and collect your blood if you're stuck and bring it to Crumlin for you and uh, yeah, there's there's so many so many good people out there want want to help you when when you think that there's nobody there to help you. So uh, thanks to everybody, people at Trim, Clady, even today I got got an email off a, a chap from Cork, Eamon Downey, the Cork hurling supporter, just wanting to wish us well just out of the blue. So mm. it's it's country wide, you know, people want to wish you well, and it it, it means a lot, you know.
2: Well, I want to wish you well as on this afternoon from everybody here on LMFM Radio to yourself, to Ben especially, Ben McCormick, to yourself, Mark, Michelle, your wife, and Alex and Molly and all the family. We're delighted for you. And this is a real good news story. It really is. It's uplifted my heart today to listen to you tell it and to come to the weekend and emerge from this is simply wonderful. Well done to Ben and all of you.
3: Thanks, Jerry. Just before I go, could I just give a shout out to... Uh uh, Nicky Potter and Evan Fitzgerald, Beverly Lynch, and Ellen Keneally, who are doing a 400km run in seven days for the Irish Cancer Society. Today is their fourth day doing it. So uh, just a big congratulations to them, and it's a, it's a, it's a great cause that they're running for. And it's thanks very great. much, Jerry, for all your good wishes, and thanks for having me on.
2: I was so delighted for Ben and all the McCormicks. Best wishes to them all for the future. Harry O'Donoghue from Dundalk is one of Ireland's top dog breeders and trainers. Great news this week. His dog, Ruby, was named as the top dog of the decade by fellow breeders in the country. Harry takes up the story about his wire-haired terrier. game in conjunction
5: with Irish Canine Press, decided to run this competition because there is no dog shows in the country now for the whole year. So they decided to run a competition which would be judged by votes by various people rather than by judges and um gain sponsored they put the money up for all this
2: okay and, okay and
5: 75 of the top winning dogs over the past uh, uh, 10 years uh, have uh, have uh, been selected to partake in this competition
2: OK, so your dog, the winner ultimately, was picked from 75 of the best over the last 10 years and Ruby came out top. You must be over the moon. Oh, it's very
5: nice. Yes, it's nice to breed one that does so much winning. Yes, it's, uh, it's always nice to breed a good one.
2: Now, you, you bred her yourself. Uh, tell us a little bit about her. You bred her. What happened as, as she uh, uh, grew up and matured? Well, as
5: a a youngster, she and her sister were two very promising uh, female puppies in the litter, and we ran them on until they were about eight or nine months old, where normally you start to show them in the puppy classes. But then we were campaigning other dogs, and there was no opportunity to show Ruby at that time. So we decided then we'd wait another year before we'd show her, and in the meantime, she had a litter of puppies. And by then she was about two or two and a half years old and we decided then that now is the time she was mature to start showing her. And I sent her across, uh, I showed her a bit in Ireland and then I sent her across to my handler in England and then the rest is, is uh, what I say, is a, is the a record. because She had broken the already 40-year-old record that was held by uh, an English person with another Fox Terrier. But she broke that after uh, some length of time being shown.
2: So she'd won that many titles that she exceeded the previous record for her own terrier breed. Yes. I see. So this dog is just a- a- an outstanding animal. And she went on to be shown in Britain, across Europe, here in Ireland, all over the place, Harry.
5: Yeah, she did. She was in Florida and she was all over Europe. And she represented a. Oddly enough, she represented England in in Florida because she was the biggest winning uh, uh, dog at the time in England. And she represented England in Florida at a a massive uh, event Mm -hmm. in Florida. And um, she won uh, the world show in Sweden and she won many, many big shows all over Europe.
2: Yeah, and she finished second in the terrier group, which is all the terrier breeds at Crofts as well. She was just such a, an outstanding animal, yeah, really outstanding. And Harry, how long, how long did she live for? What, how many years? She
5: lived? Um, she lived about fifteen years.
2: And where, where have you a, a, a memory of? her? where is are her remains? What's the story her there? it's is in my garden. Ah. Every
5: time I cut the grass, I think of her.
2: <laughs> and she died what a couple two or three years ago, was yeah, it? She, she passed did, yeah. away. Yeah, yeah. Oh my! And is she is she unique in that she's buried in your garden, or are there any others laid to I don't rest know, there? no,
5: no, there's a few other famous ones. Yeah, uh, but they're beside her.
2: Hmm. Yeah, and just, just to yourself, you know what I mean, and, and, and your career. And look, as I said, you are one of the tops in Ireland, never mind uh, in these islands, Europe and the world, in, in when it comes to breeding. How did you get into the terriers? Was it all, always terriers or where did you start off from?
5: Well, uh, my grandfather, when I was seven years old, gave me a little Jack Russell, female. And um, when I was 17, she died. And then I wanted a pedigree dog, but they were very expensive. I mean, in those days, in 1943, uh, they were 12 guineas, or all guineas, those were guineas. Uh, and 12 of them was a lot of money, yeah. but I couldn't afford it because I was still at secondary school. So eventually I bought a, I gathered together like three guineas to buy a Lakeland Terrier, which is similar in shape to a Firefox Terrier, only the color is black and tan. And then I started to breed Lakelands for many years and made many champions, but I always wanted a wire fox terrier. And in the meantime, I got some, but they weren't good enough. But in 1971, I won best terrier at Crofts with a Lakeland. And then I decided to uh, specialize in wire haired fox terriers from there on in, because that was the highest award I could ever win with a Lakeland. So I started in 71 to try and perfect wire fox terriers.
2: And boy, have you perfected them. I think the tally stands at in excess of 150 champions you've bred in the wire hair. And, and it was over 50, I think, in the Lakeland. I'm mean, right there, aren't I, beforehand?
5: I think, I think in total of all the dogs... There's about 212 champions.
2: <laughs> I am in the presence of canine royalty today, folks. I have to tell you that. Look, tell me this, what, 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 what's the secret? How, how do you turn out, you know, so many consistent champions? What's the key ingredient? Does it start with the breeding of the animal, I take it?
5: Well, it does. Um, it starts with trying to get your head around the standard. There's a standard
2: printed for every
5: dog by the Kenner Club. And we have to try and interpret the standard and try and breed to that standard. If we interpret the standard wrongly, we're not going to breed good ones. But if we try to interpret the standard correctly and, uh, and be careful of what way we breed them, we will breed good ones. And if you get into a good line, particularly with a female line, Sometimes you have females that are literally like the, the, the geese that lays the golden eggs. They can produce very good ones. I have been lucky in that respect because I've had many good bitches that produce very, very good progeny.
2: And you know when they're in the ring, because I've been to a few dog shows in my time, I watch Crufts every year as well, the personality of the animal itself, I know the way you know it's built physically, but you know their personality and the way they behave in the show ring. As a breeder and as a judge, getting them to do what you want them to do in the presence of a crowd and judges, is that difficult? Yes. The answer is yes.
5: (laughs) And you must spend a lot of time and patience. Uh, if you don't train them, the, the, you can have the best dog in the world. If it's not trained, he won't win. You have to train them. Uh, and many dogs are self-trainers, but many are not. And you have to train them to have the attitude that they are, they themselves are the best dogs in the ring. And when they walk into the ring, they say, well, look, what, I am the best. They have to have that attitude. Otherwise, if they're nervous or otherwise, it's a waste of time.
2: And when you get it, when you achieve it with them, is it like anything in any sport? You must reinforce it. Practice.
5: Practice and practice. Daily practice. Daily preparation. Daily trimming. I mean, the Wirefox Fox Terriers are a breed that has to be trimmed uh, literally daily to get them into proper show condition. And um, they all have to be done by hand. They're not done by a clipper or anything like that. You have to do them by hand. And... um, by virtue of the fact that you spend so much time with them on a grooming table every day, they become accustomed to it and they become accustomed to the groomer as as well. And they, they form a bond between the two and uh, hopefully they perform then in the ring.
2: You know when you're with your judge's hat on and you judge and you are judged in turn by others. It's, yes. Is it a very, um you know, is are judges strictly guided by you mentioned there what you have to breed to but guided by regulations in terms of judging or is it subjective
5: well the proper answer to that is that we are given a standard to judge by we before we come judges have to study the standard and try and interpret correctly and when you go in the ring judge, Sometimes you have many, many, many good dogs. And it comes down then to the final tiny points. You can have five or six or seven very super dogs in the ring, but you must make a decision. There has to be a first prize winner. And you have to make a decision on the spot. Mm. You make a decision for what your brain tells you is a correct dog, which is bred to the standard.
2: Did you ever have to revisit a decision even in your head, Harry? Always. <laughs>
5: always, mm. always, always. When it comes to top shows like Crops or Montgomery County in the US or the World Dog Show, there's always many, 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 many top-class dogs. And you say, I wonder, did I do the right thing? Always. Many times you say yes, but then there's always a little doubt.
2: Mm. It's... Uh, tremendous passion and interest for so many people all over the world, Harry. You see that. You've been to all the different continents, all the massive shows the world over. In Ireland, you know, how how are we in in a world context? Where do we rate?
5: We, for a country that shows possibly 1,500 dogs per show, we are well up there with the rest of the world. I mean, we have many big shows all throughout the United States. But many of our top quality dogs, and not only Terriers, but many of our Terriers, and Kerry Blues, uh, um, Wire Fox Terriers, and so on, have gone to the States and become huge winners. Mm. So some of our top dogs certainly can compete with any of the world-class dogs. There's no question about that.
2: There you have it. We're world-class when it comes to our dogs great to hear it, Harry. We heard news of lots of young birds being taken to rescue centres who were simply overwhelmed. Only one man to call, Niall Hatch from Birdwatch Ireland, who joined us to educate and advise. You
4: know, it, It's a problem at this time every year, but uh, this year is particularly pronounced. We're getting lots of people contacting us in Birdwatch Ireland as well about this, because people are spending more time at home, of course, and they're seeing the birds in their garden. And in the vast, vast majority of cases, people shouldn't do anything. They should leave the birds where they are. Uh, very often when you see a young bird out of the nest, particularly if it's fully covered in feathers, uh, it, it's actually quite normal for it to leave the nest before it's able to fly. The parents are almost always keeping watch over it and are c- continuing to feed it. Uh, and uh, So in, in most cases it hasn't been abandoned or, or orphaned at all and so the best thing is just that the parents continue doing that. Uh, if a bird is found on the ground and it's, it's, it's very small, if, it, if, it's, if it's you know naked or has its eyes closed, doesn't have its feathers yet, uh, the best thing to do, the best chance of survival of all is to pick the bird up and pop but it back into its nest if you can. If you know where the nest is and it's not dangerous to, to reach to it or climb up to where it is, put the young bird back in the nest and that gives it far and away the best chance of survival. If that's not possible, uh, the next best thing to do is to pick the bird up and pop it back onto, onto a, a branch or, or in, a, in a shrub or some ivy or something like that as close to the nest as possible in the hope that the parents will continue uh, Continue to feed it, uh, so that that's that's very important. If a bird is showing signs of injury, you know, if it has a, if it's bleeding, or if, if it um, looks like it might have a broken wing or something, and bearing in mind it can be hard to to, to detect that sometimes. Uh, it, only in those cases should people maybe contact a rehabilitator through Irish Wildlife Matters uh, and his website there. Uh, but in most cases, intervention isn't required. It can do a lot more harm than good, I'm afraid.
2: And oh, no, that is a message, folks, you need to heed today. I know people, you're right, Nile, who are not familiar with this, think, oh, mm. the poor thing. But really, it is just nature taking its course.
4: It- it is, absolutely, and, and in most cases there's nothing wrong with the, the young bird at all. Uh, and there's a few a few sort of myths around this that we, we can certainly dispel here. So people are worried that if they pick up a young bird and put it back in the nest, that uh, there'll be a human scent on the bird and the parents will mm. reject it. Well, the fact is that most birds have no sense of smell whatsoever, so they, they're not able to detect a human scent anyway. So that, that that won't be a problem whatsoever. The parental instinct is so strong that, the, that they will continue to come and feed that chick and that they won't notice any difference, most likely. Uh, it's you know As I said as well, for, for lots of birds, like robins and blackbirds. It's not at all unusual for them to leave the nest before they're able to fly properly. So they can seem quite helpless on the ground, just sort of fluttering around the place. They also haven't really learned much about danger or about potential predators. So they can seem very naive. They let you go over and just pick them right up so people think that they need help. and, and Obviously, people are doing this, they're motivated very much by a desire to help the birds and by compassion, which, you know, which is wonderful to see. You know, we, we really appreciate people caring for the birds so much. Uh, but people, people need to realise, though, that sometimes that their actions can, can really cause big problems for the Birds—they would never have intended—and David sure many would be horrified to know. The, the, a few of the reasons why it doesn't work—I should really, really uh, ex- explain this a bit, a bit more. When when people take a, a bird in, a young bird, and they try to feed it by themselves for themselves, first of all, they don't really know what, what food to give it. So people often feed the birds things like bread or things like that—that are you know, it's terrible food for birds. They're not going to be able to survive on that. Uh, birds also need to eat far more frequently than than we humans assume. So people take in a young bird and they think, then the surprised that it dies quite quickly, and they said, "Well." you know I, I fed it I fed it regularly every three or four hours. Uh, it needs to be fed every five minutes like literally they're eating machines. they have to have food put them in the whole time. The parents know exactly the right mix of food to give them the high in protein. they don't want to move them onto different types of food so that's one problem. The birds are often very malnourished if people try to raise them. Uh, another thing that happens is that They don't have any parents then to show them how to find their way in the world, how to avoid predators, how to find food, how to fend for themselves. They're not equipped for life in the wild then when people go to try and release them. Uh, And very often they're not accepted by their own kind either because they behave in a strange way and the other birds are quite suspicious of them. And another one that's very important too, for for songbirds in particular, they have to learn their songs from their fathers because in most cases it's just the male that sings. And that happens roughly around between the age of 8 and 12 days old. And if the bird isn't exposed to the correct song of its species that time, a male chick won't grow up singing the correct song. It won't know how to sing properly. And a female chick won't grow up knowing what song to listen out for in a potential mate. So they never have any chance of, of, of breeding or reproducing in the future. Uh, so all these little things that, that people are you know, meaning very, very well, but, but they don't understand what they're doing necessarily and the, the repercussions can have for the birds, they behave in a very different way to, to the way that humans might expect.
2: Well, you've won the case hands down. Folks, if you just have listened to what Nile has to say there, leave well enough alone. Bringing it all back home for a moment. I have uh, starlings, and I just actually saw Nile in the back garden this morning, a blackbird, mum and dad. They have three chicks. Now, they're well yeah. flushed and plenty of feathers on the mind in them, but they're going about their own business there. But I want to ask you this. The starlings that... Uh, Hatched in my fascia, just above the back door. Okay. How do how do the young ones not crash to the ground when when they actually flush?
4: Well, it, it, so what it is is it, it's all to do with instinct, uh, because you know the, the, those young birds have never flown before, but they have they have feathers at that stage, and although they're not able to fly properly, they can still flap their wings and it'll help to slow their fall. And it's it, instinct kicks in, so when they find themselves actually falling from a height um, when they leave the nest, their wings will automatically flap. Um, And and I suppose in some way the same way that if a person suddenly falls off, you immediately put your hands down to try and stop yourself. You don't even think about it. And that's the same for these small birds. They flap their their arms or their wings through instinct, and that's enough to slow their fall down uh, and they, they land them, you know, maybe in a, in a very ungainly way, but still safe and sound mm. on the ground. So that's way, the way it happens. And you mentioned that about your blackbirds as well with the mum and dad in the gardens. So I'm sure you've actually seen how the parents are teaching them how to find food, continue to look yes. after them. it's a very important part of their development, absolutely.
2: Yes, because that's what's going on at this moment in time. Not far from where I sit here in the house. They're actually at it at the moment. But look, the message today, just to finish off, is don't inundate the rehab centres. They're busy enough, now.
4: Uh, absolutely yes you know we, we, when, when in cases where birds genuinely are injured or other wildlife needs help then that's when the rehabilitators do, you know the, the, that's when they're needed and they need what the resources are best needed for uh, and we know of course as i said that people are, are, are handling these young birds and bringing them in because they, they have the very best of intentions they really want to help these birds which is absolutely fantastic and um, we're just getting the word out there that in most cases the birds don't don't need the help and it does more harm than good i'm afraid
2: more harm than good let nature take its course Finally this time round, male domestic abuse doesn't get much of an airing. This week, Larry joined me to tell his story. For 20 years there was no issue, but these last eight have been a nightmare. Here's Larry explaining how they got on great for years. We met and we,
6: we got on great from day one, and uh, and we had a wonderful, wonderful relationship for 20 years, and there was there was just occasional signs that... Um, beneath the surface was lurking uh, a, a temper which uh, I found a bit frightening and when it came time to uh, tie the knot if you like uh, that ultimately put the fear of God into me when I saw the temper in its full swing pre-marriage and I actually called off the marriage but she convinced me that it was a one-off and um we went ahead and we got married and we had some beautiful children and we had great times um until she fell in love with somebody else and uh unfortunately i was surplus to requirements from that point on and uh she was determined to try and initially she she tried to uh, get me to physically assault her she'd always provoke me, you know, and, and say things like, uh, oh, come on then, hit me, hit me, why don't you hit me? You know, yeah, you're not man enough to hit me. That kind of thing, you know, which which is very disturbing because it's just not in my nature uh, to hit anyone, man or woman. And and I hasten to add that, uh, you know, nine times out of ten, uh, it is usually men that lose their temper in these situations, more so than women. Um, but it's wrong whenever it happens.
2: Mm. So the key moment or key, t- key time was when she met somebody else and wanted to leave you and start a new relationship. That's when this began.
6: Yes. And I had no idea she'd met somebody else. She just um, told me that uh, she'd have to work late and uh, and then she'd have to an early start the next morning so she wouldn't be home. And uh, I was... Uh, You know, from the time the kids arrived, uh, she'd made it very clear that uh, she'd had an unhappy and abusive childhood and wasn't interested in taking care of the children, although she wanted them. Um, Whereas I'd come from a very happy, loving family and was uh, self-employed, so I could easily work from home. So I was happy to do so because it gave me extra time to spend with our beautiful children.
2: Um, when did you find, just let me ask you this, how long before you found out that she was having an affair?
6: She she came home from work one day and started treating me with absolute contempt for, for no reason whatsoever. And then she'd start saying things like, oh, look at you, for God's sake, it's... It's uh, it's like coming home to a housewife instead of a husband, you know, look at you, cleaning the house and taking care of children, you know, I deserve a real man in my life and you're not a real man at all. And that, that was kind of hurtful, you know, because I felt I was pulling my weight and uh, uh, I'm sure if a man came home to his wife and said, would you look at you, she would do nothing except take care of the kids in the house all day long and Uh, people would not regard that as being a very reasonable statement on behalf of the man, especially where there was, you know, a few young children who needed full-time care. So I felt that it wasn't very fair and reasonable of of her to be doing that, particularly in circumstances where I was still holding down um, a full-time job and, uh, and bringing in a lot more money than my wife was so Mm. um, it it, it was very it was very difficult but I I I suppose looking back on it I was a bit thick (laughs) because I just (laughs) I just uh, I couldn't understand how she how my wife would 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 start an affair with another man I I, I just it was you know we had 20 years of of wonderful times together and we had a a, you know we had four very very young and um and very needy children who needed two parents uh, um and uh i mean when i say very young the youngest was a week old um so uh it was it was strange to find out that she'd been having an affair while we were expecting our youngest child uh for starters and that as soon as the youngest child arrived uh she wanted to leave me for this other fellow um, but that was her decision over which I had no control. I did everything. I begged her to go to marriage counselling and and whatever. But um, she just kept telling me about this other guy and I should see him. And he's just such a real man. And, you know, you're just like a housewife. And, um, and the marriage counsellor said there was nothing he could do because she just wouldn't turn up or if she did... Turn up on one occasion he said she simply wouldn't engage with him and I asked was there anything that I could possibly do and he said um, the only thing your wife seems interested in you doing at the moment is uh, is selling your business and giving her all of the the proceeds Um, so you could try that but it might put you in a very strong position if she decides to leave anyway Um, which is ultimately what she did and the the verbal abuse then uh, turned physical because she came in and uh, gave me a letter from a solicitor one night saying that after trying everything uh, she has no option. Uh, every every effort having failed to save the marriage, she has no option but to leave. Um, and in those circumstances I will be required to move out of the house uh, tomorrow morning and find somewhere else to live. And Luckily, I was able to call a solicitor that night uh, and they said, well, look, she can't she can't leave and you'd be mad too. So the next morning, uh, there were three articulated lorries outside the house and a bunch of lads came in and said, we're here to take all the furniture to your wife's new house and um, it transpired she had already prepared a new house for herself and the children and was leaving. And I said, well... You're not leaving and taking the children. And, uh, you know, there's no. The solicitor had told me she had to have a thing called a parenting plan in place, and she didn't have that. So um, the guards came and said, Well, you know, would you not, if she's leaving, she's leaving, would we'll just, we'll you just stop creating a scene, basically, and let your wife go? If that's what she's going to do, she's going to do it, and you're only upsetting your children, and would you ever be quiet? And I said, No, I won't be quiet. These are my children, and I'm not allowing them to be taken out of my care. I'm I'm the one that cares for them and loves them. My wife, frankly, is more interested in her work. Um, She goes to work at 7 o'clock before they're up. She never comes home until after they're gone to bed at night. So she only ever sees them on the weekend anyway. And then she insisted that we always had an au pair because she was too tired to do anything. So I felt the whole thing was uh, very unfair and unreasonable and I certainly wasn't letting go of my of my children and into uh, into my wife's care in circumstances where I didn't believe she was behaving in a very rational fashion.
2: Mm. I'm listening um, to you and I'm thinking here, this woman engineered this. this well, whole that's thing. where was... I
6: say earlier I was a bit of a tick because, you know, I should have seen this coming months, months earlier. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And I just, I would not believe. I would, I would not. I was brought up to say that when you get married, you're married, and that's it, and you don't—it's not—it's not an option from that point on. It's, and once you have children, then you know you have other people's lives in your hands. So mm. you're you're in it, and you're—and and that's it. And if you come across problems, you work through them. But especially with a, a newborn baby just arrived, um, I just wouldn't accept the possibility, even though the signs were there with the working late and all that—that that she was. Uh, uh, and fallen in love with somebody else. Did she go? She left, uh, eventually, but for three months she had to go through the court process so the two of us were living in the same house and that's when the physical abuse started um, where she would, on on one occasion, for instance, she uh, came up behind me when I was trying to get into the car and she grabbed me around the neck and put her knee into my back and that brought me very hard down onto my knees and I had to go to the doctor to get a bit of treatment and the doctor had seen signs of this coming a lot longer, not before I did. So he insisted that at this stage I had to go to the guards and tell them what was going on. And I was very reluctant to do it because you you kind of feel like, you know, I'm a man going complaining that a woman's beating me up. It's just, it's not the culture in which we were brought up. Um, Gary, to be honest, you know, men are supposed to be tough, I suppose, and big boys don't mm. cry and all that sort of stuff but eventually I, I took his advice and I went to the guards and, and they said well sure aren't you Aren't you a fully grown man are you not able to look after yourself um, and that didn't help because then mm. I felt yeah I'm being the one who's who's ridiculous here so from that point on any time she'd physically hit me I'd just let it go and put it down to the fact that I must be a bit of a sissy <laughs> I suppose Um but then you know when she did eventually leave. Um, after uh, the courts, of course, took the children off me straight away and gave them to her. And even though she wasn't going to be there to take care of them, um, she employed nannies, and it was it was nannies and no parents that took care of my children for that first year. And she wouldn't allow me any access at all. Um, but after a year, the uh, the court said, no, you have to let him see his newborn baby, um, who at this stage was a year old, of course, and. she hated me seeing the child. And when I, one day I remember she dropped the child off and I took the child out of the car and the door was open and the other children were sitting in the car and they, they went to get out of the car too. And she said, no, I didn't give you permission to get out. And she slammed the car into reverse and reversed back hard, hitting myself and the child with the door. And we went down uh, I threw myself on the ground first, obviously, to try and protect the child. But then, when I stood up, she ran. She rammed me again with the car, and this time, she she actually uh, put a hairline fracture into my hip. And uh, again, uh, the doctor said, "Look, you know, you have to go to the guards. You have to tell them about this." So I did, and I went and I said exactly what had happened. I gave them the time, the date, that before, or the four the four children saw it, and. Uh, and the guard said, "Oh well, we'd have to investigate this." And uh, anyway, about a year and a half later, the guards finally got back to me and said, um, "Oh look, we can't do anything about this. There were no witnesses." And I said, "Well, what about the medical report and the hairline fracture to my hip?" And they said, "Actually, that could have happened any anyway at all. We uh, we can't help you here now." So, yeah. so yeah, you kind of feel a bit uh, a, a, a bit unwelcome uh, mm-hmm. when you're making complaints. And, and it's and and, Goanne, and those the woman does.
2: The, those situations that happened are in relatively recent times.
6: They are, yeah, in the last few years since she left. But the the the, yeah. the, the psychological and emotional abuse is is nonstop. You know, the the constant texts to me telling me how uh, I'm I'm mad and I need to go and see a psychologist. Uh, and why don't I just leave her and the children alone? And I need to get over her and realize that she has moved on. And you know, I mean, the reality is I ended up uh, crying on the shoulder of a dear friend uh, about a year after my wife had left. And of course, I wasn't seeing my children at all. And we ended up becoming the best of friends. And subsequently, uh, we've uh, entered into a, a permanent relationship. And But my wife still sends me. Or my ex-wife, as she is now, sends me messages saying I need to go and see a psychologist to help me get over her. Um, and um, I think they call it gaslighting. Is that the right word for it? Mm. Yes. But the, the the pain of of uh, her perpetual incessant breaches of all the court orders, stating that I to have access to my children, really hurts. Um, she she goes into court and tells them, oh, he's an alcoholic. And the courts say, well, we have to err on the side of caution, even though we know she has no evidence of any sort. And we have to protect the children. So on that basis, we're going to stop using the children now. And no amount of blood tests and psychologists' reports and reports from addiction clinics, uh, from specialists, from hair sample analysis, none of that was ever accepted as proof. That in fact I don't drink at all, um, but the court said, "Well, we still have to presume you must be an alcoholic because your wife says so." Um, and when that, uh, you know, then of course the court say, "Oh, well, you better be supervised then if you're if you're an alcoholic, and then I had to, to be breathalyzed every day." And there's there's never once ever been any trace of alcohol. As they say, I don't drink, but um, it doesn't matter. Uh, the that, that and that's the kind of psychological abuse that that happens men and and it hurts I tell you an awful lot more than than physical abuse um, not condoning physical abuse in any way and by the way Mm. this kind of of psychological abuse doesn't just happen men it's exactly the same thing they call it parental alienation happens to women where men turn the children against their mother and uh, it's, it's a despicable despicable thing to do where you know, the the abused party really in all of this is the child, and uh, um, and unfortunately, uh, you know, um, our former minister for justice uh, tried in two thousand and fifteen to bring in the in the Children and Family Act. He he brought in uh, journalists should be allowed into court, but unfortunately, they're still effectively not allowed into court, mm. except in the most innocuous of cases. Mm -hmm. And um, as a result of that, our current Minister for Justice, Charlie Flanagan, says, well, there is no empirical evidence of this parental alienation going on. But the reason that there's no empirical evidence is because um, parental alienation is hidden in the in-camera rules, whereby what happens in court, you're not allowed to talk about it. Um, And the only people who could are the journalists, but, of course, journalists. Are not allowed in. There's, there's, I think, uh, seventy two different reasons a judge can give as to why he will not, or she will not mm. allow a journalist to cover a case. And those which are in uh, have any level of contra- controversy associated with them, do not end up getting covered by journalists. I
5: there, he- is, there is a hasten to yeah, add. I, I,
2: I, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying, Larry. And what I hear is that you feel. Everything is stacked against you and it, it, that's your experience from your particular uh, case. Just, I have, to, I have to finish up now and, and I, I could talk on to you forever, to be honest. I just want to ask you this in conclusion and we're getting lots of comment in. Keep them coming to us. 086-1800-658. If you want to comment on what Larry has been saying to me by WhatsApp or text, um, do you see your children? Uh,
6: yes, I get to see them 24 afternoons a year.
2: That's it? That's it. Uh, do you feel that they are on the other side of this, you know, this breakup? that they are, what you mentioned there a moment ago, do they look on you as the villain of the piece?
6: Well they've been told that when they were younger I used to beat them. They don't remember that um, but they have reported that to their GP that oh yes we were beaten when we were kids and then Tusla investigated and they said well There's no evidence of that whatsoever. And we believe that the mother has put the children up to saying this um, and uh, is the case of parental alienation. But unfortunately, nobody can act on it, really.
2: Parental alienation. So many people going through the same. Thank you, Larry, for telling your story. That's it for the moment. We'll have more interesting conversations with great guests soon for you on our next podcast. In the meantime, do join us each afternoon for Late Lunch Live from 1.30 on your station, LMFM.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.